Hello, welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. But the bigger thing that I remember, which ultimately trumps anything in that whole situation was the sound of my daughter screaming, please don't hurt my mommy. I mean, she is 28 years old now, and that sound is still in my head. Working in the pediatric office, some days is hard for me. I feel like I want to cry because I feel like I wished I had it over to do it over again see these little babies come in with their parents and even their dads. And I say, gosh, I wish I had it to do all over again, what I would do different. This year, Finding Our Voices is bringing around a survivor-powered film and conversation program around how children are impacted by emotional abuse by a parent. We will be at Waterman's Community Center on North Haven on Tuesday, July 18th, 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. This fall, we are coming to public libraries in Millinocket, Damrascotta, Mount Desert Island, and York. To coincide with this theme of how domestic abuse traumatizes children, even when it is not directed at them or is not physical, Today will be a rerun of an episode from 2021 on parental abuse. My guests are all from Belfast, Maine. The writer, Elizabeth Garber, the artist, Sue Garrett, and the poets, Kathleen Robinson and Corinne Spitfire. Elizabeth Garber is talking with me today about her book, Implosion, a memoir of an architect's daughter. Welcome, Elizabeth. The poem... I uh, created for the Finding Our Voices, and it's a story that I've written in a memoir, and it's a story, it's an event that happened 50 years ago this year. I will risk everything to free us. All I have to do is kill my father. Oh my God. Then the yelling will stop. I am 18 when I decide. All I have to do is surrender my life to free us. Once I know this is all I have to do, I'm light, almost peaceful. Touch the sharp steel blades in the kitchen. Then the yelling will end. It doesn't matter, I will go to jail. I make lists, all the books I could read there. I sleep, set the table, clear the dishes, live in a razor sharp beam of anger, happy. I will set us free from this nightmare. I will find the space between the bones, find his heart. I am invincible, unstoppable, riding this angel of fury to free us. My fury, my very own, just discovered, just allowed, just released anger will save us. Yet something happens. 
My family stands frozen in the kitchen, my mother, brothers, and me, a family portrait, and he lectures, threatens, sweat streaks his face, my hands edge towards the drawer of knives when something happens. We all turn, we all face him. Our eyes unify in fury. Our eyes say, this is enough, we are done. No one says a word, no longer his hostage. He collapses, chest shuddering, gasping, pitifully broken, struggling on the linoleum floor. One by one we walk away. No one has to die or kill to free us. I never pick up the knife. I stop being the girl who sacrifices my life to save my family. I become a girl who saves herself. Wow, thank you. There's so much more I, I heard in this in this <clears throat> in, in the poem this time. One of the things was find his heart. Mm. Mm. And then his heart is what gave way when we turned and just went with our vision, said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to just keep living um, in this craziness. And we walked away. It was, it was an extraordinary moment. Did, but, did, was that literally you're talking about? It literally happened. And he collapsed on the floor. Really? Yeah, with heart arrhythmia. We all stopped being party to his controlling and madness. Mm, and the control, yeah. You slayed the dragon. Yeah. What was it that unified you? <clears throat> I think we turned on him with a unified, I don't want to say hatred, but a unified no. It was just enough. It was just point. a no. Yeah, it's enough. It's over. What I also, I heard for the first time in here is like that we had been held hostage by me him. Me too. That, that, that's another thing that really stuck out for me. And um, so this is, essentially this story is where this a memoir of mine, a new memoir I'm working on, ends. And ironically, in the story, my brother and I, my dad had sent my brother and me away to this school on a ship to learn how to work hard. And he saw us as these problem kids that had to be sent away. But ironically, we ended up being held hostage. You did? We were held hostage in Panama for two weeks. But I realized this is, you know, the... The real hostage taking is what happens at home. Yeah, and and that's another thing that I'm like so conscious of, like the crimes that are committed. Like mm. it's, people say domestic abuse, well they're thieves because they mm -hmm. they steal your life, mm -hmm. they steal your autonomy, mm -hmm. um, they they do hold you hostage. Mm -hmm. They're terrorists, you know. Yeah, domestic terrorists. Yeah, it felt like our house was surrounded by a wall of thorns and nobody knew what was happening inside and no one knew on the and we couldn't escape it around the outside world. You act normally and then you walk back into this hell. Right. And when I came out with implosion, my memoir Implosion, which was about my relationship with my dad over the years, family I had a cousin who bought a copy for everyone in my family. She, but she was absolutely stunned because she said, I work for Planned Parenthood. My expertise was knowing about domestic abuse and here it was going on in our family and I didn't know. We all knew my dad was crazy. Mm. We knew he was explosive, but no. You had other had... words for it. You didn't have the word domestic abuse. Yeah, and she had no idea. She, she felt so stunned and actually almost ashamed that she hadn't understood what was going on. My father was a radical modern architect in the 50s and 60s. And 
I grew up and I was his first born of that family. And I, I was the child who had the role of keeping my dad happy and upbeat because he was bipolar. Do you think that's an excuse to call him bipolar or do you think he really did have a medical condition? He had a medical condition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he had had shock treatments. He would go into horrific depressions and be in bed for weeks at a time. And then, and then he would just get high and buy lots of records. And Was he fun to be with then? Oh, he was extraordinary. Charming. <clears throat> Charming, brilliant. And that's what your mother fell in, lo fell in love with, yeah. probably. And, um, yeah, he he was a racing car driver and had all these cars and parts around the yard. And, um, and his architecture students thought he was the most amazing teacher. And um, they, they revered him. They revered him. But how about his personality? Was he ever... Uh, mean to them or they didn't see that side of it him well, if someone became his business partner then it got bad mm. but he loved architecture students who were adoring he loved that's when people thing. were adoring that make that's very interesting yeah he because i think mm. my ex was like that like he could be you know benevolent to mm -hmm. people who adored him but yeah when it came to, to business ruth being ruthless so i was the adoring daughter and i wanted to learn everything i could about architecture and modern art and my mom was very young. She was 21 and he was 40 when they got married. Oh, wow. And she was naive and dyslexic and sort of struggling to figure things out. And even when I was a little girl, I felt older than her. And I could talk about art and modern art and sculpture and architecture with my dad. Like it was just my own language. And and I loved the vocabulary of architecture of like cantilever and... Um, the words. The words. Yeah. I loved the words of it. And I loved going to his office and looking at plans. And I could read plans and sort of visualize spaces. So I got a lot of, I would adore my dad. And I got a lot of appreciation. And we had this really um, loving, sweet relationship until I started having my own mind. That's what I say with my, my daughter. Yeah. That's what she talks about. When she was a baby, like he really fawned over her, right? And then as soon as she started talking, like when she was like, I think nine, he called her a b you know? Mm. Because she, that's when you start having your opinions or whatever. Right, self-differentiating. Um, what, what did you think about your mother when you were growing up? Um, you talked a lot about how you admired your father. What was your opinion right. of your mother? Um, I thought she was a bit wimpy. Um, and I... And I also was competing for my dad's attention. And she was taking care of my little brothers. And I had a little sister who died. And so I associated my mom with sort of being an overwhelmed housewife. How much of that was because of your father's behavior toward her? Um, that was probably some of it. And also, I there was a way when a child becomes their adult parent's energetic or emotional partner. So I was really sort of this creative partner with my dad. And so he would talk about home and kids with her and he would talk about architecture with me and some with her, but it was, I was hungry for that attention. And, but there was a moment when I was about 12 or 13, when I really wanted a transistor radio and my 
dad who was like, oh, you want to listen to my kind of music? And my mom got that I wanted to listen to the Beatles or popular radio. And she got me, and it wasn't my birthday, she gave me a transistor radio, a little. And it was like, at that moment, I got that my mother saw me and who I was and what I wanted, where my mm. father wanted, approved of me and gave me gifts or whatever, but they were about him. Mm -hmm. So he gave me for Christmas a whole architectural drawing board and a T-square and a architectural supplies and compass, and she gave me a transistor radio. So He liked you as a reflection of him. Yeah. And... Um, <clears throat> So how could it be that you were your, how did it go from you being a, the adoring daughter to someone who wanted to kill him? It's amazing how that can shift. Um, he, he started, there started being the criticizing and the putting down and then lauding my youngest brother who worked hard with him. When we started working on building our modern house, and everything became work. It was sort of the end of our childhood. And we worked every weekend and all summer building this house and then doing the landscaping. And our his approval was then on who was a hard worker, who was a hard enough worker, and who didn't who wanted to work with him and not have their own life. So my youngest brother became the one that my father adored and he criticized me and my middle brother. Um, that must have been hard for you to go from, to start being criticized when you had been adored by him. Yeah. Um, and it was also when I was starting to break away. So it, and I could go back and forth. So I could get back into architecture or art and I could get his attention or approval again. But um, when, I think the thing that really turned everything was when I fell in love with a friend of mine from school who was black and then my father went on a rampage because even though he was very liberal and um, yeah, modernistic, modernistic, modernistic right. or whatever, he went, this isn't safe. This is, you know, it was 1969, 70, 71. Was your mother okay with it? She was careful, but she was okay. She was supportive of me. Um, and my father a number of times forbade us to have anything to do with each other. He said, this is not the time in your life to have a boyfriend. You need to be studying and working hard. And, and then he was determined to do everything he could to separate us. And sending my brother and me away to the school was mm. part of it. Um, but my boyfriend and I, he was already going off to college and I was going a different way. And, um, but he, he was just the dearest most loving, supportive first boyfriend imaginable. He and I are still, on March 26th was the date of our first kiss. We still email each other notes of happy anniversary Aww. 50 years later. Was your father racist, would you say? Um, he thought he wasn't and he was when it came to his daughter. Mm. And how did that change the way you thought about him? Then I got more and more angry. And then he just started exploding and getting more and more into rages. He was first sort of enraged. Well, he was enraged against me and, and then the relationship with my boyfriend ended. Then he was tearing into my brother and then he tore, was tearing into my mom and like all together or would he, would he would one he at a time? He would sort of, so we'd sit at the dinner table and he would just start pounding away and lecturing and attacking one person. And what would the other people do? We, 
sometimes would intervene, but that made things worse. So we would just end up in silence and walking away. And then when he really, my mother started becoming a activist. It was the age of the beginning of feminism. And um, my mother went back to school and was studying criminal justice and started creating programs for volunteers to work with women in prison. My mom went from being meek and mild to doing amazing things in the city of Cincinnati in prison reform. Did she stay with him? No. Oh, when did she leave him? She, I left, my brother and I came home from the school on the ship. And that summer was when this happened about thinking I had to kill him. And then um, I left to go away to school. And a few weeks later, she left. And how did you feel when you found out she was leaving him? Um, really relieved. Um, and ironically, he had to have the, she had said that she was moving out. And then the day before she was moving out, he changed the locks on the door so she could never go in again and never get her stuff. And, you know, those kinds of controlling moves. But was he, was he able to get away with that? Did the, did, did she call the police to try mm-hmm. to get in the house or just let, um, Ironically, she was a probation officer at that point. She had, he said that she had to write down on a piece of paper everything that was hers and he would decide what he would give to her. That's what happened with me. You're kidding. No, I left my marital home because I didn't feel safe, I, you know. Yeah. But possession being nine-tenths of the law wasn't wise in that way to do it, but I just couldn't stay there because I, I just, he knew where I would be. And so that's what happened is, is um, I end up having to write down the things I wanted and he would um, get them or not. Yeah. Get them and, and, and bring them to me supposedly have someone bring them to me. But I would come up with a list of like 10 things that I really, really needed, you know, mm-hmm. cleaning for work. Like I had an exhibit. So I needed the photos, fame photos that were in the um, studio. And I, and then he would have his caretaker come and just dump like right. 50 things that I did not want. And like one of the things that I did want, you know, it's all yeah. about power. And yeah. Instead of me being able to, when he's in California, go into the house and pick the things I want, he's mm-hmm. going to pick them up, right? Yeah. He never let her in the house. Wow. Typical. So she had to do that writing things down. Look how typical that and is. And then it's he ridiculous. also said he had given her all her jewelry, so it was his and wasn't hers. Did she get a lawyer involved? She did. She eventually got a lawyer, and that's got things moving along. And then there were battles over a particular cooking pan for years, that kind of stuff. Yeah, control. Did he end up remarrying? No. no. And what was your relationship with him after? Um, I'm a Libra, so I'm always trying to find balance. And I tried to have a relationship with my dad and my mom. And my mom, by that point, was really angry and said I had no integrity if I wanted to have anything to do with my dad. But I saw and slowly came to understand the impact of mental illness. And um, and I was also trying to, to have the dad who I loved and had an exchange of ideas. So I wrote to my dad, he and I would talk on the phone. We would sometimes have really great times and then he would ha- have times when he'd go into explosion. Mm. So was, you, was your father famous, would you say? In, in the Midwest he was. And how did that affect what was going on at home, the fact that he was famous and he was behaving that way at home? Um, It felt more like we had to keep this secret, Um, that um, 
because of his work or because, you know, we couldn't talk about or we couldn't, we had to sort of keep quiet what was going on at home or that felt like an unstated thing. It was like he was also colorblind and here he was this architect and did all these colors and on his buildings, but we had been told as children we could never say that he was colorblind because it would affect his career. So in a way, this felt like another never talk about it because he was well known and he had all these buildings downtown. And how did it feel to hear good things being said about him and knowing what he was like at home? Um it was sort of that split world of there were times I, we were prou- I was proud of him, you know, when a building would open, it was really stunning. And, and, and there's, as you know, there's this thing that can happen of amnesia. Your things can be absolutely horrible. And then I would go back into hoping that things could be good again. And then at first it would be good and then it would run down and then it would get really horrible. And then we the I'd leave home or he'd, you know, something would happen and then things would get slowly better. And then I'd have this amnesia again and think and be hopeful and hope that he and I could have a relationship or talk about things or things go well. And then it would crash and burn again. Did you, when you were growing up, were you, um, did you want your mother to take you away and leave? Were you ever upset that she didn't leave him? Mm -hmm. I had a cousin, who also had a challenging parental situation. And we would lay bets on whose mother would get divorced first. And if one of our mothers got divorced, then we would win. Of, And that was when we were, I think, early teens. Um, but that it was both, it was such a relief. And then it was also sad. It was like this back and forth. It was like wanting wanting things to be different or wanting things to have been how they had been or this hopefulness. Um, But mostly it was such a relief after my parents got divorced that my mother wasn't living with that anymore. Oh, yes. Yeah. And growing up, was it a, did your father get worse as you got older? Is that what happened with his temper? Mm -hmm. And was, could you describe what the temper was like, what kind of things he would say or what would happen? Or was there um, one incident that stood out that was really bad? I know it was mostly, it was a lot of times every night at the dinner table. Sometimes so dinner it would was go miserable. On. Yeah, lecturing. And we would have these beautiful meals and this beautiful food. Your mother and had he prepared? Would, yeah, or that we, we had gardens and we grazed our food and we'd make really nice meals. And then he would, we'd be going along and we'd be talking and then he would turn on someone oh, and he would just start getting heated up and and you all knew what was coming yeah or some or actually the worst was being in the car with him Ooh, when he I and i wrote that. about you're it trapped. implosion you're trapped and he's driving faster and more recklessly and there were so many times i was like holding on to the seat holding on to the door and hoping i didn't die because oh he was driving so was dangerously. your mother in the car when that happened actually most of those times i was with my dad um, by myself when he was yelling, I can't, there were a couple of times where my brothers and I, we were going to my mom's college graduation and he was driving so recklessly on the highway. Um, I wrote in implosion, I wrote a scene of 
he and I, he came to California to visit me and I was in my late twenties and we were having this great time. And then he got triggered thinking about my mom and he just started yelling and racing up in the Berkeley Hills faster and faster and thinking- Chasing after you even? No, in the car. I was in the car there and thinking, here I thought I escaped all this and then here it is all over again. And I just felt like, please don't let me die. Please don't let me die. What is it like for you to be in a car now? Like, does you have residual effects of that from that? Mm-mm. And have you ever been with anybody who has done anything like that Mm-mm. since? And how about the dinner table? Has that affected how you feel about dinner or eating? No, no, it was just for years afterwards when we would have Thanksgiving or family would get together, we we would just go and no one's yelling. It was just this huge relief. It was. And it takes a long time to recover from this. And my mother and brothers and I have each sort of followed our own path of recovery. Um, my br- youngest brother and I both did years and years of therapy, and my middle brother didn't for a long time. But now he's really unpacking the PTSD he lives with because mm. he was the one who got the most abuse from my dad. And how did it affect his life? Um, a lot of suffering. Oh. Yeah. But um but he's it's so amazing when he started he can't really talk about things, things set him off, but he's really understanding. Um he'll tell me a book to read that he's been reading and it's just amazing what he's he's allowing himself to see because he for a long time he just suppressed everything and trying to hold things down mm-hmm. with drugs and alcohol and, oh jeez but um now he's uncovering it and it's just so dear i love him so much how do you think it affected the relationship <clears throat> of the of the siblings to each other um because he treated you in different ways. He treated us each in so different you had ways. Different childhoods. Do you think you had different childhoods to some degree because of that? Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting way that when you're overempowered by an abusive father or parent, it can look like a good thing, but it's actually it's as abusive. I, my brother, middle brother, was underempowered and criticized constantly. I was mm. overempowered and lauded my younger brother also was overempowered and lauded so there's this it almost creates different classes in the same family mm-hmm. um so it's like Hubbard and my youngest brother and I seemed like we were privileged in the family and my bro- middle brother was um your poor middle brother was the brunt of it it's yeah horrible. he was the brunt of it but why um, what was it about him that you feel he had the you, same name as my dad you think that's part of and he why? was very sensitive and thoughtful oh and I mean, feeling the root of a father yeah so um but when you're overempowered it's it's actually underempowering cuz you think it's like anyone getting privilege that they don't deserve I and mean, you're just another child rather than being sort of a lauded child and it it it's a very destructive mixed messages and then when you said you talked about killing him, you really felt you had no other way to get out of that? Is that what it was? Yeah, it felt like it was the only way for the yelling to stop. Because I didn't think my mom, my mom, who also had an abusive sort of 
loud, tirading father. Oh, she did. So she had learned to go silent and do subterfuge. And we would talk and complain about him when our dad wasn't there. And then she would shut down and go silent. And so I didn't think that she would do do anything to stop it. And I felt like I was the one who had to stop it. Wow. And then once she got out, then she really got her voice in terms of the family and herself. Look at it, how if she hadn't gotten out, it would have been lost and missed. You are listening to Let's Talk About It, conversations with survivors of domestic abuse on WERU-FM, second Friday of every month at 4 p.m. I am Patricia McLean, host of this show and president founder of Finding Our Voices which you can find at findingourvoices.net. Let's return now to my conversation with Belfast, Maine, memoirist and poet, Elizabeth Garber. And then how do you think that now, uh, does it have anything to do with you being a poet, do you think, that your father? Um, I started writing, I knew I was going to be a writer starting when I was about, seven or eight or something and I started keeping journals and did the journals help you in writing the memoir they did they were great for research details but I feel like writing helped anchor me and helped give me a sense of who I was so even if it was hard for me to speak up or challenge I had this world where I wrote could we just talk a little bit more about your mother we also had this agreement and I wrote it about it in the memoir about um, that we couldn't get mad at my mom that even if we were mad that she wasn't standing up to our dad or whatever we had to support her and to keep her strong because she was sort of on the front lines and sometimes was between us and our dad so we had to sort of be there to be for her. Did you talk about that or you just sort of understood it? It was sort of an understanding that we wouldn't get mad at her. And, and that we were protective of her. And how much of this passiveness do you think came from her being, you know, put down by your father? I mean, that she was dyslexic and a family of academics and intellectuals, and she felt dumb compared to them um, and insecure. But then, ironically, then she became an activist. And because she didn't get all that applause for being an academic like people in her family did. So she found her own way. Um, and then I became really proud of my mom over time, just seeing the things that she had done. And how about your grandfather, who was abusive? Um, we we did centrif- subterfuge. We sort of snuck around. We tried to avoid him. Your grandfather. Our gra- your my mother's grandfather. Father. My mother's father. We would ignore or the lectures. Yeah, it was the same thing. Um, but he... He was getting older, and he didn't have the power that my dad had. Um, but And we would just go for short visits and see him. It wasn't like living with that. So what do you think about breaking the cycle? What's really wonderful is seeing how strong and outspoken my daughter is. and And seeing my son and how he works on issues of... of male women relationships and communication and works on issues of class and privilege. I mean, both of them are really 
quite remarkable and that they're in really great relationships that are really equal and meet them both. So I, I thought, you know, I didn't pass that on and I stopped the cycle. How do you think you did? What do you think the answer is for that? 30 years of therapy. <laughs> oh, yeah, you did the work. I did the work. Yeah. And writing in my journals, yeah. writing and writing and therapy and women's groups and women's circles and um, slowly getting my voice to stand up and speak up for myself. One of the most amazing things was bringing this, when I went on tour with this book, was bringing it back to that village and about 150 people showed up to my book release and all these people went home and read the book all over town. It was like breaking the secret in the village where I grew up. And all these people read, some people read all the way through, other people read to the abuse part and they couldn't keep going. And it brought up the conversation about abuse and um, sexual abuse and child abuse in the village where I grew up. So it was how do pretty you know, amazing. How do you know it ha that happened? Um, people I know, oh, I went back for another talk in Cincinnati later and then people said did you hear what happened <laughs> when every when I had brought copies of my book I think it was like a hundred copies they went home all over and people were up all night reading it and it was talked about a lot yeah and then this one friend started talking to all these people all these women who only read so far and then stopped and she said so were you abused and it brought up people started talking about child abuse for the first time Mm. So it was like, I felt like I had brought that conversation to where I'd grown up. And it felt like one of the bravest things I had done. Thank you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was talking about her 2018 memoir, Implosion, a memoir of an architect's daughter. Her new book is Sailing to the Edge of Disaster, a memoir of a young woman's Daring Year, published by Toad Hall Editions. And now I would like to welcome another sister survivor and friend from Belfast, Sue Garrett. Welcome, Sue. Sue, thank you very much for sitting and talking with me today. You're welcome. You gave us a piece for our exhibit. You said you originally did something and then you decided to do something else. Right. I was originally trying to write about my story of what it was to live a, grow up in a home of domestic violence. And then I just felt that my mother had gone through so much and um, survived it and blossomed from it that it turned into I wanted to do a story about her instead. So I took the actual piece that I started with and used... Um, jagged scissors and cut out pieces and made a really messy collage called chaos. Oh my goodness, I'm noticing now that pieces that are missing from here are in the second piece that you made us. So they really are companion pieces. So I'm looking at this first piece that you did. So the number one, it says doctor's home, well-maintained on a quiet dead-end street. So your father was a doctor? Yes. And what was the perception in town about your family, would you say? Oh, I'm sure he, the perception was that we were a well-to-do, um, healthy family, that we didn't have problems. We had the American dream. So then the next thing I see is make him stop, make him stop, 
And then it looks like the child is saying that. And how can she just sit and watch when my brother get brain damage? So is this your mother that's sitting and watching? My mother was sitting and watching on a couch. I was running around. Uh, it's hard to see the graphics, but that's the chicken's head on the ground. Like I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off saying, make them stop, make them stop. Because I didn't understand. My dad was literally sitting on my brother and taking his head and pounding the head, you know, picking it up by the hair and pounding it on the floor over and over again. And I just thought for sure he was going to get brain damage or something. Did your brother have it worse than you with your father? Yeah, although he didn't, he didn't do it a lot. He did it very violently when he did, and we all were very, very afraid of him. So you mean he didn't do it a lot to any of you, but he did it violently to all of you? More so to my brother, but he did things like uh, with my sister, he hit her and hurt her wrist. I think he broke her wrist. I He's a doctor. Remember. Yeah, yeah. And I remember once he threw me all the way across the room and the chair went, I fell into a chair and it broke the drywall behind the chair. <laughs> um, so we really were very afraid of him. And would you, I mean, don't you think terrorized is a good word? Oh, yeah, because his, he, would, he would get rage, and you never knew what would trigger it. Like, I remember once I walked down some stairs, and he thought I stepped on his coat, and I could just hear that rage rising, and I just started backing up the stairs. And fortunately, it was, un, it was able to be de-escalated. Sometimes you could do that, yeah, I remember yeah. with my own ex. And it was also a very chauvinistic family. Mm. And I was glad my cousin did come in and live with us for a while because she made a real stink about, well, wait a minute, why did you take the younger boy up to visit a college when you've got two girls in the family that are closer to going to college and should have gone up and seen? And um, that was a really good argument. And so I was really glad that my cousin came to live like with us. like some reality checks. Yes. But um, there was two times we had people come and live with us, and both times uh, my guidance counselor intervened and got them out of there. I can relate to your ex. It's like everybody kind of looks up to him, and I think that's what a lot of people, like they don't even want to hear this story today. There's a couple of people that I, I uh, socialized with that knew him and really loved him. It would hurt them to hear this side of him. Going back to your mother, so describe what your mother was doing when he was doing this to your brother. She was sitting on the couch, and now, in retrospect, there's a part in here that kind of explains what I did, and I think I understand, is that that was as strong as she could be, is to be in the same room and watch him. So whatever abuse she had experienced, that was all she could do to support him. So do you think that in your mother's mind, she was actually taking a stand by yeah. sitting there and watching? Yeah. And she felt that was the most she could do, and that was a lot for her to do, to sit and watch. I think, I think she felt that was all she could do. There was some sexual misgoings around with my dad. Um, like, I knew he was raping my mother, and um, the teenage girls had kind of, my cousin had kind of communicated that, oh, did you know your sister went through this? And, oh, did you know? So he was molesting your sister? Well, he attempted to once when she got out of a shower. 
and supposedly she was able to get into her room and put a bureau up and protect herself. Um, he also tried to rape me, and if he succeeded, I really don't remember. Um, I just know he very much verbalized that that was his intention. He said things like that. He said to you things like that. Mm -hmm. And and that's like here at the dinner table, us children would be at the table and we would hear it. And I don't know if he thought we didn't understand or what he thought. But he, you know, he's just doing every, any, every damn thing he wants to do. And that's yes. the thing that my ex did too. It's like yes. they make it very clear that they're just going to do whatever they want and they terrorize you so that you do not say anything no matter what they do, right? Right. From steps. So that it's almost like they're training you that they could say anything they want and you're to never even show an expression. Is that, can you relate to that? Not even, exactly. not even not say anything, but you can't even show on your face that you don't like that. Exactly. And in this instance, I couldn't even open the door. I heard my little sister saying, you're squishing me, you're squishing me. Oh, your little sister, I thought that was your mother. No, that's my little sister there. Oh my gosh. She's, if I'm 15 or 14, she's four or five. Oh my God. And, and this is the bedroom, right? Yes. Oh my God. And we used to lock her in the bedroom, which she would never, she was a hard, child to get to sleep and I don't know where that came about but it's interesting because I'm getting to know my sister now as an adult and she talks about being locked in for hours and hours and hours and I don't know how long she was locked in I thought we just tried to lock her in to force her to take a nap my mother drank. oh your mother dress your mother drank and he he, he was violent right and, and you think your mother was drinking too leave the picture in, in a way to just be able to cope better? I think so. So what is this where it says, what moan, what moan, then it was her turn? Oh, see, I was very frustrated as a child not understanding where she could watch her son be beat. And Mother, so yeah. there was one time when he just really went to town on her. I saw that, and it, what happened, I found afterwards, is my brother took my younger sister and they lo he locked them in a guest room. Oh, to protect your younger sister from seeing yes, it. Yes, yes. But not trying to intervene. Right, he was scared, I mean, I'm sure. And, and so that's, this is me where I had been asleep and I woke up to all the commotion and I went to find out what it was. And so I, I guess here it is, I'm like, what's, what's going on? And then when I realized what it was, there was this very confused child of being, well, now you know what it feels like right. versus, oh, go get some help. After I knew of my mother and the shenanigans with all the girls and his attempt to rape me and verbalize it, um, and I have all these memories that I don't totally remember, I, so I can understand the inability to protect and the inability to act. My message in all of this was we need to break, we need to break the habit of we need to talk about this and break the repetition of trauma because otherwise it's not gonna stop. People get used to it to some degree and it just continues. At what point did you, was there, did there come to be an understanding where you get to understand your mother more? Did forgiveness need to happen? I think so. I think there was a point when I was very angry at her. Um, when was that? When I was a teenager. 
it's, it came out in the funniest way to me. My brother wanted to take me Christmas shopping, and he really wanted me to buy a gift for my mother. No, for me. And he brought me to a shop. He goes, well, let's get something for mom. What do you think she would like? And I was just so mad at my mom at that time. I just couldn't focus on, you know, the issue. Um, but when I took incredible respect for hers after my dad took his life, um, she, it, it was an ordeal, which we may or may not talk about, but um, she took responsibility to take us to places where, you know, m maybe a similar place would be the Samoset. And so the meals provided, there's no dishes, there's no cleanup, and there's a place to exercise. So we would talk about our frustrations of growing up, the relationships, the interrelationships or lack thereof. And then um, we would go work it out and just release. And to me, I had so much respect for her because she would take responsibility for some of it. Did you ever ask her about the history of her and her, your father and how they met and how it got abusive and how bad it was and all that? No, I do wish that I had longer with her. She um, came down with lung cancer at a fairly early age and passed. And there's so many things I would have liked to ask her. But she did, what she did is she turned her life around. It was a happy life, you know, she planted flowers. She became a select person, the first select person where she lived and woman select person. And um, she helped people. And so she just really, really blossomed and enjoyed life. An interesting point is it was a bone of contention when we came to write her obituary. My siblings wanted to say, they wanted the obituary to pretty much just start with her life on the island after he was gone. Mm. But there was a lot of trauma. And basically, even within the family, we didn't talk about it. It's interesting that, um, you know, my older sister was very successful. She went on to be in the banking business and be a vice president of a bank. But of all four of us, um, my brother's been married once, divorced, no kids. My older sister has been married twice, divorced twice. She had stepchildren, which she helped put through college. Um, I was married for 30 years and got divorced, no children. And the only one who has children was the little one. You know, the real pleasure is my little sister went and had two children, and her daughters had three children. And to me, that's given the most healing and the most joy to all of my generation. And, and why did you want to, to do something for the show? I think it was in honor of my mother. Um, I just had these strong feelings that she... Uh, she needed a voice and she didn't have it. And I, I think she went to her grave without a lot of people knowing about it. And so, you know, my telling the story now, I think some people will be surprised. I think many people didn't know what she put up with. And 
to me, it's part of her life. Thank you, Sue. Now we will hear from two Belfast poets who also contributed to the Finding Our Voices Waldo County Breaks the Silence of Domestic Abuse. Kathleen Robinson Weston and Corinne Spitfire. Welcome, Kathleen. Kathleen Robinson Weston. Little bluefish. The limbs of the backyard maples swayed in late spring winds. Their fragile leaves split in glee. Sunday light slanted in through two short windows. That morning he hauled me into the bedroom. He held my hair from the back, thick waist length and easy grab. I'd learn years later from a cop, this was how men ganged unsuspecting women in sleepy parking lots. My head tilted back, slammed the bedside. My shorts, thick khaki, half-moon pockets roughed at the edges, rolled neatly just above the boned, narrow knee. He pulled them off as I lay face down on the bed. The same instant, he pulled off his belt. You may know that sound. Click of metal released. Swoosh of leather lacing swiftly out of its loops. I shivered. I'm shivering now. First whacks are always hardest. You wait and wait. He was furious, towering, wild gray curly hair and mustache eyebrowed eyes meeting my own as he hurled the looped leather across my backside. The strike brought stars. I held my breath after that first howl. The third and fourth and fifth. It only angered him more. One blow for each week I was behind in writing lines for him. Four hundred each day. I howled inside, shoving the fullness deep down into a core I did not know lived in me. That black forest of broken bones. It became firmament. He paused as if he couldn't go on. My ponytail, the perfect weapon he used to haul me up against the wall, the small moon of my head slamming it, busy hands at my neck, my own forgotten, feet dangling a foot off the floor, little blue fish underpants and khaki shorts crumpled at nine-year-old ankles. While he screamed and spit into my face, fingers lacing into stone around a neck too small for measure. My legs trembled. My legs are trembling now. I've spent my entire life hiding that part wearing skirts and dresses, long coats and tops, to fall past my hips, 
covering that woven, weeping part of me, once exposed to a Ferris father enraged. Thank you, Kathleen. Welcome, Corinne. Corinne Spitfire, Belfast, Maine. Residue. An essential tremor is commonly described as an action tremor. I shake, my left hand mostly. It makes some people nervous. Sometimes I am nervous. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes my whole body shakes. There is not one myth in the Western world of a daughter killing a father. These nerves to the left hand, this group of muscles, can't completely resolve the simultaneous impulses to never reach out to him or to cut his juggler. Now he's dead of his own accord. I shake the death rattle and sing freedom. Thank you, Corinne. If you have any questions or comments for me or for my guests, Elizabeth Garber, Sue Garrett, Kathleen Robinson Weston, and Corinne Spitfire, feel free to email me, Patricia McLean, Founder President of Finding Our Voices, at hello at findingourvoices.net. For the month of July, 42 Midcoast restaurants are stepping up to bring light to domestic abuse survivors with the Finding Our Voices Into the Light Foodie Fiesta. Each has created a yellow food or drink item and are donating part or all of the proceeds to the Get Out, Stay Out Fund in Finding Our Voices, which pays for shelter, car, legal, and food expenses for Maine women and children survivors. Check out the list of participating restaurants on our website, findingourvoices.net, and visit and taste as many as you can in July. Also in July, David Dodson and Lisa Redfern are performing a benefit concert for Finding Our Voices through the Good Trouble Project. Rockland on Saturday, July 22nd, starting at 7 p.m. at the Unitarian Universalist Church, $15 at the door. Hope to see you there. And if what Elizabeth, Sue, Kathleen, and Corinne were talking about sounds familiar, if someone in your life is making you, and maybe your children as well, miserable and afraid, say something. Advocates who understand it and believe you are available 24-7 by calling the Confidential Domestic Violence Hotline run by the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence. Phone number is 1-866-834-HELP. And the Sisterhood of Survivors that is Finding Our Voices, a movement I started three years ago upon the DV arrest of my husband of 29 years, is here for you too. Check us out at findingourvoices.net and feel free to email me directly, Patricia McLean, President Founder of Finding Our Voices, at hello at findingourvoices.net. Join us next month on WERU for Let's Talk About It, second Friday of the month at 4 p.m. And until then, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time.
It's been a long hard 